Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking to Dr. James Bellich about his book titled The World the Plague Made, The Black Death and the Rise of Europe, which is just out in 2022 from Princeton University Press. This is an absolutely fascinating book. Um, I must say this was one that I had the hardest time narrowing down the list of questions for because there's so much packed into it. Um, In the book, really, um, our author, who we're about to hear from, takes the readers across centuries and continents to shed a ton of new light on something that I think maybe a lot of us think we know a lot about, um, which is really the Black Death. And crucially, why and how we can understand Europe's dramatic rise in the wake of this massive plague, um, and as the book will argue, a series of plagues and demonstrate to us. So without giving too much more away, um, I'm very pleased to welcome you, James, to the podcast. Thank you very much. Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Well, um, I'm a, <clears throat> uh, the bike professor of global and imperial history at Oxford. Uh, I was originally a New Zealand historian, uh, then ran out of New Zealand history and uh, went global. And one of the things I was pursuing, even as a New Zealand historian, was that uh, was a, a satisfactory explanation for the rise of Europe, you know, a tiny continent encompassing maybe five, six percent of the Earth's surface, which uh, between the 15th and the 19th century rises for good or ill, uh, mainly the latter, to global hegemony. Um, and that seemed to me to be a question that hadn't really been effectively answered. Even today, when we've transcended racist explanations and triumphalist explanations, there still seems to be a suspiciously flattering note to uh, the, the list of possible causes, particularly in terms of virtuous culture traits and benign institutions. So I, I, I searched back and back and back and eventually lit upon uh, the Black Death and the subsequent plague era, as I call it, uh, which transformed West Eurasia, including Europe, but not restricted to it, uh, into a a region with peculiar potential for expansion. Hmm. I like that phrase, peculiar potential for expansion. I think that sums it up really well as we're going to get into Um, And I will definitely warn listeners as we start the discussion that this book has amazing amounts of detail in it that I'm definitely not going to do a good enough job to get through all of the details. So we'll hopefully cover the main things and some of the kind of top arguments, etc. But um, if what we're talking about intrigues you, which I'm guessing it probably will, I would definitely direct you to the book for the full, um, you know, every example, every detail, every um, piece of the argument. So I'm wondering if you can maybe start us off by um, explaining what the four major revisions are 
um, to our understanding, kind of illuminate for us more of a bit of this kind of question we've not really answered? Uh, well, the, the, the four key takeaways about, about new scholarship on the Black Death is first that it, that it was Yersinia pestis after all, which people had doubted for quite a long time, and that it was mainly transferred long range by, by rats, black rats. Um, second, that it, it killed even more people than we thought. Uh, in most regions of West Eurasia, it killed half the population, which is just a staggering statistic um, for anyone to contemplate. Previously, people thought it was about 25 or 30%, but 50% seems to accord better with new evidence. Then uh, the third finding is that Contrary to what many scholars have asserted, uh, it did not, in the 14th century, stretch to India or China. It was largely focused on West Eurasia, plus possibly a bit of East Africa and certainly a bit of West Central Asia. But it was, it was West Eurasia primarily that took the big hit uh, of around 1350. And then subsequently, uh, further big hits, none as bad or as widespread as the first, but pretty bad still, uh, which continued to keep the population of Europe and West Eurasia in general uh, down to about half its normal level until 1500. Yet this was the very time that European and Middle Eastern expansion began or renewed. So that's what I call plague's first paradox and the four revisions about the Black Death are the key to understanding it. So then what is essentially, I mean, obviously this is massively overgeneralizing, but what is the answer to the plague's first paradox? What's the relationship between this massive drop in population, as you said, bigger than we maybe currently have thought, um, and this potential for expansion? Um, it's it's counterintuitive, but the fact is that, um, amazingly enough, uh, after the Black Death, people managed to pick themselves up and after a year or two of disruption and continue sort of harvesting and trading and uh, fighting each other. Uh, but what was peculiar about the plague compared to other catastrophes was that it killed people only, not useful livestock, not... Um, capital or coin or precious possessions or tools or barns or houses or castles or ships. So the, the relative proportion of these per person suddenly doubled. So suddenly you have a society that had been very poorly capitalized prior to plague, which is suddenly in a position where um, a substantial number of people, not necessarily a full majority, although in many regions it did become so, um, almost um, you know, without precedent, uh, became active in the market and active in the consumption of luxury products and of extractive goods. Uh, by luxury products, I mean, say, silk uh, and spices. And by extractive products, I mean things like whale products, cured codfish and herring, uh, furs uh, taken from the seas and forests of Northern Europe in particular. And there's a surge in demand, which you can trace in various ways, pretty convincingly, though um, 
It might not meet um, the standards of econom econometric historians and their equations. But nevertheless, um, you can double check and triple check and you find that per capita, uh, demand for these products goes up massively to the point where supply uh, can't meet it. And at that point, people start to think of reaching out for it. Uh, and you start to see as early as the 1360s, the first movement of the Portuguese and Spanish towards the Canary Islands to find slaves who suddenly have tripled in price after the Black Death. And you find uh, Russians from Novgorod uh, crossing the Urals into, into North, North Asia, uh, into Siberia, northern Siber northwestern Siberia. Uh, just let me check that it's western. Yeah, northwestern Siberia. And you find a surge, another surge of Muslim merchants uh, from the great uh, Muslim trading state, city-states of um, Aden and Hormuz and you find them mounting another push into the Indian Ocean and into Southeast Asia uh, in search of increased quantities of pepper and other spices. Mm. I think that in a lot of ways it seems like a really obvious point, right, that plague kills people. It doesn't, for example, burn everything down um, or cover everything in mud or anything like that, and yet it does, as soon as we realise that, kind of immediately take us down this route of other implications um, and as you say in the book it, it seems in some ways certainly counterintuitive and maybe in some sense as perverse to think about a silver lining for those who survive um, the initial plague and because you mentioned it obviously in your first answer and I think it becomes really important to understand um, the kind of perpetuation of this can you tell us a little bit about kind of the idea of a plague era and how we can understand strikes uh, well, um, the, the terrible thing about the whole business, and you can never forget the, the human cost of all this, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, um, it's a silver lining under a very, very, very dark cloud. Uh, but it's there, I'm afraid, you know, like it or not. Uh, history doesn't always behave as we'd, we'd like it to. And uh, the fact is that, um, uh, you know, people do uh, manage to pick themselves up and get on with it, um, and they have twice the tools to do so. So, um, and some of those tools actually are of the type that um, enhances the effectiveness of their expansion. And that's where this kind of package of new expansion-friendly assets uh, comes into play through technical innovation and cultural innovation, uh, which I call the expansion kit, mm. uh, and that's um, sort of the, the, the demand for more extractive goods and, and luxury goods provides the motives, but it's the expansion kit that provides the means for successful expansion, which Western Europe at least had not been capable of before, so enduring expansion that is. Th this is, I think, a really key part of the kind of why Europe answer. Um, why how does the plague relate to these technical innovations and, ex and therefore kind of the expansion kit? Well, the, the, the basic thing is that the, the disappearance of half the labour force forces a turn to non-human sources of energy. Water power, um, which um, uh, booms m metallurgy in, in, in West Eurasia, 
uh, especially Northern Europe, which has got the best water sources, um, to run forges, which are 10 times as productive as the initial uh, traditional bloomery, uh, and use a uh, little more labour. Um, it runs fulling mills in the production of woolen textiles. Uh, fulling had previously been done by humans, uh, human feet, and now uh, these water-powered hammers pounded away uh, to mesh uh, woolen fibres. Uh, it boosted paper production and rendered it much cheaper. It, it boosted local silk production, but not to the not sufficiently for it to meet demand. And the evidence for this dots the place. You know, it's fragmented, uh, and it's never in the sort of series that economists might like. But it's nevertheless very clear. Then the the, the second uh, big innovation is the use of wind power, and that applies most to windmills to some extent, uh, which first appear in a new form, a revolving windmill in in the Netherlands and the early 15th century, within a century of the plague, um, but more towards sailing ships. Now, everyone had sailing ships, but before plague, sailing ships were designed for particular seas and particular seasons. Uh, in any kind of rough water or tricky water, you wanted ore power, you know, um, to get yourself off a lee shore or to make your way to land. To be totally reliant on sail, um, you used specialised sailing ships. Now, after the Black Death, because the cost of uh, rowers is so great, on one of the great galleons that made its way from uh, Asia Minor, uh, Anatolia, to Southampton and Bruges, uh, you'd need 200 rowers, basically as insurance against pirates and lee shores and bad weather that you could escape from. Um, by going to shore, and after the Black Death, Death East simply became too expensive. So people started experimenting with multiple rigs and multiple masts on sailing ships of various kinds. And by the early 15th century, within 50 years or so of the Black Death itself, they had developed the three-masted, the three -masted, fully rigged ship, uh, which later became the Karak, in, in the big versions, and the sort of slightly thinner, narrower versions became the galleon. So my shorthand for this process is the sort of plague-incubated incubated appearance of the galleon, which was a long-range generalist sailing ship, which could survive in most seas and in most seasons. So suddenly, Europeans had the power, Western Europeans, as long as they had an Atlantic coast, which was another precondition, had uh, the power to actually visit other continents themselves without going through Muslim middlemen. Um, and they were helped by the third big innovation, which was greatly increased use of gunpowder. Uh, now, gunpowder, um, guns were not necessarily more effective than bows in their early form uh, in the later 14th century, uh, but they were, they saved labor, they saved training time. Uh, it took musketeers or something like them had appeared by the mid-15th century, and it took, you know, three months to train them where it might take 10 years to train a decent uh, mounted bowman or a decent longbowman, and a few years even to train a decent crossbowman. 
so suddenly guns proliferate. And once you start putting them on the galleons, you've got an extraordinary capacity to not only visit other shores, but to ensure that local shipping uh, cannot hurt you and that you can hurt it. Now, it doesn't give you land power, um, but it does give you the capacity to range like a vulture or an eagle, depending on your point of view, around the shores of the world, looking for opportunities, uh, for desirable goods, for profit and for slaves. Mm. And of course, the example that that picture paints um, in many listeners' minds, certainly mine um, sat in London, is of course, that seems like a very good description of what ends up happening with England um, and then of course Britain. And yet one of the important contributions of the book is expanding this plague-boosted expansion kit beyond the assumption of Western Europe. So can you help us understand kind of how these things come together, um, perhaps somewhere beyond that usual scope of Western history? I think so. I, I mean, I think what we need to grasp is that Europe was never part of a, a sort of subglobal world, was never a whole subglobal world, world, sorry, in itself, but only part of one. And West Eurasia is, in fact, intimately connected by seas and rivers, which, um, you know, run, run all around the place, straits and inlets, ranging from the Baltic Sea to the Red Sea. Um, and so these places interacted. And, you know, it was Islamic religion that divided them, um, that divided and, and the rise of Christianity as a state religion, uh, rather than kind of fundamental geography. And so this, this West Eurasian world um, was a space in which it was easier for things to percolate around than with the rest of the world. And one of those things, dreadfully enough, which percolated around was plague, which reached the edge of West Eurasia in about 1345 uh, from the Tian Shan Mountains in Kyrgyzstan and, uh, and, and pervaded quite rapidly around this place, which shows that it was well connected. So you couldn't have had plague without the connectivity and that connectivity applied not just to Europe, but also to the Middle East and North Africa, which a bit unfairly to North Africa, I call West Eurasia. Uh, then after, and, and so you have various forms of expansion in Eastern Europe, particularly by Russia, and in uh, the Middle East, particularly by the Ottoman Empire and by Oman, um, and in North Africa, particularly by Morocco, across the Sahara Desert to the Songhai Empire in search of gold, just like the Spanish conquistadors at the same time. Uh, so initially, there's a widespread expansionism which is kind of midwifed by city-states like the Genoese and which is initially led by Middle Easterners and Iberians, Portugal and Spain, uh, and Moroccans. Then it's only after a time that these empires don't so much implode as begin to lose centralised power that your northern European powers, your northwestern European powers, France and the Netherlands and Britain come into play. And they do so partly by emulating and by sort of semi-hijacking some of the early, earlier empires. And so um, they play the great game um, and compete, particularly France and Britain in the 18th century, in the long 18th century. 
and eventually Britain's the last man standing in terms of maritime global power. Um, and, you know, that's why Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square is so tall, um, because around about 1805, uh, the, the French and Spanish naval, naval power met its demise. And that helped Britain to sort of lead the pack. So it starts very broad throughout the whole of West Eurasia <clears throat> and then gradually narrows down uh, first to north, first to northwestern Europe and then finally to Britain. Mm. I want to stay on this wider scope um, for a moment and ask kind of about something you mentioned at the beginning that I think, again, doesn't get um, acknowledged as much in um, histories, at least in the West. And this, there's this idea that one of the revisions is um, that the plague somehow had divergent outcomes. It was quite a different experience between what we may think of now as Europe um, or Western Europe and the Muslim South. And that this had some sort of explanatory power for, you know, why things ended up differently between the two regions. Um, given how many different kinds of records and evidence, etc., that you went through to compile this book, to what extent do you think that there really were sharply divergent outcomes between these two regions? Um, and how can we kind of understand that whether we can even think of differences in a useful way? Well, you know, there were differences, but the, the, you're quite right. The orthodox view is that, you know, maybe not the orthodox view, but um, the view of those few, relatively few economic historians who take plague seriously as an economic uh, and social uh, transformer, um, they, they, they still tend to assume that the Middle East didn't have the same effects. And they attribute this to some sort of redundant assumptions about the inflexibility of Islamic socio-economies. Um, and and the, the fact is that there were differences. I mean, the North had more, more water power, for example, um, and, and you had to have an Atlantic coast, a big Atlantic coast, to have galleons. But uh, certainly the Middle East, if we focus on that for the moment, um, you know, particularly the Ottoman Empire, um, it, it, was, it was a real uh, leader, a pioneer, in, in, in guns, uh, it didn't invent them, but it took them up very quickly. Uh, and in what you might call centralised bureaucracies, um, which uh, were, were boosted by plague in a peculiar way, which I can explain if, if you wish. Um, and it also had the first regular army. It had gun galleys, if not gun galleons. It had gun boats, which it used on the Danube River on the Tigris and the Euphrates, uh, and it had a, a very sophisticated, it was really the first modern state, was the Ottoman Empire, not, not Europeans, uh, not the Netherlands, and not Britain, and not anywhere else. So, um, you know, it, it was kind of, it was the, the sort of um, path, pathfinder uh, in the early modern era in Europe, and what it did in addition to forcing European powers to kind of match it um, to survive Ottoman expansion. It also blocked them from expanding southwards, which they might have preferred to do, to take over the Holy Land, which is uh, always, a, always a desire of um, Christian monarchs. Um, but they couldn't because the Ottomans blocked the way. So they had to go east and west instead of south. Uh, so the Ottomans are key figures in what is generally known as European expansion. 
And that's one of the ironies that I hope this study will expose. Mm. I think that's a very important one. But do also tell us about the peculiarities. Well, one of the one of the things that um, I mean, another thing Western Europeans had was um, mechanical printing, uh, which a, a very good historian who died prematurely called David Hurley had picked as a play as an effect of plague, um, and you can actually track it as with many other plague innovations. Um, you know, there's a, a counterintuitive increased demand for books because people have got more money to spend on them and more money to spend on educating their children. Um, uh, manuscript transcribing becomes faster. Um, people use all sorts of little techniques, including woodcut printing. And then finally, they hit upon um, movable metallic type uh, in the mid-15th century. And as earlier he said, this is very probably a plague effect. Um, but what, what he didn't note, and what others haven't noted, is that there's also a sort of scribal revolution that applies to all kinds of writing and artistry and uh, crafts, crafts production. Um, and this is also traceable. And what it, what it actually requires, what it actually shows up as, is a new demand for light, a vision transition. And this comes up in boosted demand for window glass, which is, increases the light at which artists and copiers and uh, craftspeople can can work, uh, and it, it boosts demand for whale oil and for wax candles, for lamps and for lighting, and it suddenly turns spectacles, as in eyeglasses, uh, into a kind of mass consumption thing. And, and cities in Italy are producing, and, and Spain are producing tens of thousands of spectacles within a century of plague. And the Middle East is buying a lot of them. Um, so... <clears throat> while the so you've got the scribal transition, shall we say, which is helped by enhanced light and helped by improved uh, copying techniques and helped by cheaper paper. And while the print print revolution doesn't extend to the Middle East, the scribal revolution does extend to the Middle East. And it's this that enables the Ottomans to develop a centralized bureaucratic state in which uh, archives are kept. Um, Istanbul claims not to have lost any for four centuries, um, and um, and it enables them to conduct surveys uh, and censuses, and it enables them to maintain uh, armies of kind of a modern feudal type, where you give land to people in return for service, and when they turn up when mobilised, a big army of cavalrymen, um, um, uh, you know, of of of, of of light cavalrymen, which is the basic um, uh, one of one of the Ottoman arms, main arms, not the only one. They had infantry too, very good ones. Um, uh, which means that the big army of cavalry is met by a small army of scribes, who ticks them off. And if they fail to have turned up with the right number of men and the right number of horses and the right gear, they lose their land. And now you can you can attempt this kind of feudalism, but if you don't have um, the the army of scribes, it's not going to work and people turn up or not as they wish. So um, you get this technique which then spreads to Russia uh, and to Mughal India uh, via the Ottomans. Mm. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I was hoping we'd be able to talk about the spectacles and light. I think that was one of 
um, the really interesting aspects uh, that you trace in the book and explain. It's not just a thing in and of itself, but then again, what the implications are, what that further enables. Right, and what pressures it into existence. Mm. Sorry, sorry for um, overlapping with you there. Um, is uh, the fact that you've got so few scribes and artists left that you want to get the maximum out of them. So you increase their working days by giving them more light. And you increase their working lives by giving them eyeglasses. You know, most of, many of us know that in your 40s, your eyes start to fail. And if you don't have eyeglasses, um, you, know, you can't continue to work. Um, yet, so what you do is you squeeze more out of smaller numbers of scribes and artists. Mm. And once, once the, the educational effects filter through, you have proportionally more of them as well because more money, fewer surviving children, means more money to spend on educating those survivors. Right. And you see a, a, another counterintuitive proliferation of universities and schools and the Islamic equivalent of madrasas um, emerging soon after plague. So how can we kind of, taking that thread, because of course, in the Western European history, um, we we know plague and we also think about kind of the other big things that are happening and it's um, the Renaissance, the Reformation, but also in the Muslim world, there's a massive rise um, of Sufism and madrasas as well. So how can we kind of link these um, sort of key historical processes, how can we understand those in relation to plague as well? Well, you know, you've hit on a, uh, 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 hit a nerve there. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a lot of risks already. And the notion of, of uh, trespassing into the scholarly minefields of the Renaissance and the Reformation um, is, you know, a bridge too far for the substance of the book, but I will say that I find it hard to believe they weren't related to um, the Black Death. Um, you know, half the, when, when, when half the believers in a religion disappear, um, it's got to have an effect. And I myself suspect, although I'm not able to test it, you know, the details you mentioned before are there to test my hypotheses. This is not one that I can test, mm. but the hypothesis is that after the Black Death, <clears throat> um, people didn't cease believing in God, even though God hadn't treated them very well, because he was their sole opportunity of an afterlife. Instead, they started becoming increasingly suspicious of God's voices on earth in the form of church structures, established churches, North and South, uh, Catholic and Orthodox, and Muslim as well as Christian. And you start to see the emergence of reactions, beginning with uh, John Wycliffe and Lollardry in, in, in Britain, in England, <clears throat> and extending all over Eastern Europe. Uh, Novgorod, you have similar developments, for example, at the same time, you know, uh, late 14th, 13th, 15th centuries and, and later. Uh, you have the, the Hussites in, in uh, Bohemia, uh, and you have this upsurge of rather radical Sufi brotherhoods in, uh, in the Middle East and North Africa. Mm. So, you know, it's hard, it's hard not, it's hard to believe that there's not a connection. Mm. Though I understand from some colleagues that they would resist that notion. And no doubt it is too simple. 
but mm -hmm. it has to be in the mix there somewhere, I think. Well, and also adding in the other pieces, right, with the Renaissance, the idea of increase of luxury goods. Um, well, you know, you, you can see this. And the elite of Dubrovnik, for example, are supposed to have had four and a half times as much wealth per person within a century of the plague. Now, that's what enables you to patronise artists and to, and to shift artists from the sons of artists to a wider pool of talent, which reaches out beyond the lucky artisanal and artistic dynasties of the cities to the countryside, bring in talented uh, youths and uh, train them up. And so you find um, that although you've lost numbers of people, you broaden your talent pool, your talent quest to compensate. Mm. And also you talk about in the book how, of course, as we said, right, buildings aren't falling down. So that increases the housing available in some senses, particularly in urban areas. People can now come into cities um, right. and you can go further abroad to get exotic materials to create art. Anyway, I'll stop. Absolutely. And, and you know, your, your Cambridge, uh, Cambridge colleges uh, don't fall down and their endowments don't disappear. Mm -hmm. So they can educate twice the proportion of people that they could previously do. Mm -hmm. do. And the same applies to um, uh, monastery, monasteries with big educational foundations and to madrasas um, and vakf with big, uh, in, in the Muslim South with big educational uh, functions. So on this idea of institutions, um, one of the things that I think was really interesting um, is, of course, I mean, I always am interested in examining institutions, but one of the things you suggest in the book and sort of tease out is this idea that different kinds of institutions um, responded to plague obviously quite differently and that that had some amount of impact on kind of how the societies around them um, also responded to the impacts of plague. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about why you think Muslim institutions in the Muslim South may have adapted more effectively in some senses to plague than Christian ones and help us understand kind of the implications of that. Well, first up, I'm 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 anti-institutionalist. You know, I'm, I'm I get really irritated by the pervasive institu institutional determinism uh, in economic history. Um, but I concede that institutions were important, amongst other things. The notion that they were the silver bullet, um, I don't think, is correct. But the the notion that 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 they were kind of poorly, they they adapted slowly in the Muslim South and fast. In, in the Christian North uh, doesn't seem to stack up against the evidence because you see a very substantial, um, shall we say, set of links between the use of the Vakf institution, which is, or Wakf, which is um, an endowment that can be used for charitable purposes, for economic purposes, for educational purposes, uh, and which survives the right of monarchs to take over your inheritances. So they allow Muslim societies to accumulate capital and to regulate its use um, to maximum effect. Uh, and you see a linkage between these and the new Sufis who in the Ottoman historical tradition, historiographical tradition, are sometimes called colonizing dervishes because they make new lands flower again. Uh, they make devastated lands, sorry, flower again, which is what you need after plague. 
uh, and you see them linking up to kind of quite agile and powerful states, including the Ottoman and the Safavid, uh, and to some extent the Moroccan. Um, and you see this also in, in different forms in uh, Mughal India, uh, which I suggest was a, the Mughals I suggest were a colonizing West Eurasian power, uh, just like the uh, Spanish. So these, these institutions proved to be surprisingly adaptable, at least in the 15th, 16th centuries in the Muslim South. Uh, in, in Christian Europe, pioneered by Genoa, new institutions do emerge uh, from, the, from the immediately after plague to about the 16th century, um, which eventually do kind of overtake the Muslim versions in efficiency. And it's these that um, the Dutch uh, and the British eventually adopt. Um, and they, some of them are fiscal, uh, like um, public debt, uh, which never has to be repaid if people uh, find the interest rates reliable enough and if it's saleable on some kind of market. <clears throat> and, um, you know, relatively powerful representative assemblies which are not democratic or very seldom, uh, but which do sort of broaden consent uh, amongst commercial elites in particular, which are allowed to join the aristocrats in, um, in, in determining how the state's going to use its power, uh, and a variety of other institutions, such as insurance, for example, uh, looks very like a creature of plague, especially maritime insurance. Mm. So the institutional... Um, factors are there, uh, and but in the early modern period, they don't yet give the Christian North a lead over the Muslim South. Although arguably, uh, by the 18th century, they are beginning to. Hmm. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think it's quite interesting to, again, as you said, revise some of the assumptions and see what the evidence actually says um, in order to improve our understanding. I'd like to kind of turn away from institutions for a moment and ask, um, going back to this idea of kind of labor issues, um, because we've, we've already seen kind of the importance of not having a lot of labor, how that incubates technological innovation, um, which enables this expansion kit in a lot of ways. But you also talk in the book about the idea of disposable males and how this is also a key part of an expansion kit in a way. So can you tell us a bit about kind of disposable males, which societies that we're talking about do and don't have an issue with this before the plague and how the plague um, really impacts this aspect of the expansion kit? Um, yeah, uh, I can. It's a big question. Um, but essentially, um, I argue that whereas you know, hyper-expansionists uh, like the Mongols or the Arabs uh, do have disposable males, um, Partly, perhaps, because of polygamy, you know, um, but although that's controversial, uh, even a small amount of uh, polygamy, multiple wives for the powerful men, um, can uh, encourage, means that, that to reproduce society and to run the economy, there's a proportion of men you don't need. And you send them out to be Ghazis or Jihadis and to be the sort of shock troops of your expansion. Now, <clears throat> until plague, because it's monogamous, the Christian North doesn't have this. Uh, and um, uh, although, you know, 
illegitimacy is rife, um, those illegitimate people don't necessarily inherit the appanages and aren't as numerous, aren't numerous enough to, to provide the necessary numbers. But what does happen is a, 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 a turn to greater specialization in, um, uh, in regional agriculture, which means that it, whereas before 1350, everyone more or less grows their own grain if they possibly can. After 1350, uh, those regions in which grain is most marginal ditch it and rely on more fertile regions to supply their grain on a regular basis. Uh, now that means that they don't need all their males for the harvest and that the economic activities to which they turn, such as linen production uh, and uh, dairy farming and even wool uh, production on a small scale, can be handled at least as well by women and children as by males. So you start to get this pattern where seasonally at first, uh, people export their disposable males to provide labour <clears throat> and to bring back money. Now, gradually, um, as, as that extends into longer-term, um, uh, long-range labour uh, and the emergence of a culture, which I call crew culture, uh, which uh, uh, encourages these guys, either single or uh, without their wives, to serve in other people's fleets and armies and to staff the industries of expansion, such as fur trapping, such as whaling, such as cod fishing, uh, and such as slave taking. And so suddenly, uh, Europe too has a regular supply of disposable males from these crew regions, which tend to be either fertile and infertile and coastal, sorry, or mountainous, and they are available not only for warfare and uh, shipping within Europe, but also without. And uh, in surprising numbers, I calculate 8 million before 1800 individual people between 1500 and 1800, these guys go out. They usually die overseas, and you can tell where they came from by looking at the cemeteries, and you find that those cemeteries have got half the adult males that they should have, or than they have women, because those guys have died overseas. And these crewmen are the cutting edge of European expansion. Uh, they're a, a brutal, uh, vicious set of bastards, but they're also um, risk takers. And... Um, I, I, I use, I borrow the term sea mongols, which is not my phrase, but someone else, someone else's. And their skills in managing violence, their transport, and their recklessness are equivalent to those of the landborn kind. So suddenly there's this real formidable cutting edge with guns, uh, which also tends to carry uh, diseases to other continents, not plague, because plague until the late 19th century can't cross can't make a voyage of more than 40 days, but um, smallpox, for example, can do that. And so these, these tough and brutal crewmen make their way to the Americas, for example, and not only bring guns and steel, um, but also germs. Mm. And uh, they are the cutting edge of the expansion kit. Now, the inverse of this is intriguing. In these crew regions, and you probably know of some yourself, um, parts of Scotland, uh, Cornwall in Britain, 
parts of Ireland, northern Spain, northern Portugal. The Swiss are the major military example in the middle of uh, Europe. Uh, they don't go much overseas, but they are the most feared mercenaries of Europe in the 15th and 16th centuries. Uh, in these regions, you find that there are whole communities which are largely woman-led. So the inverse of this disposable male is the woman-led um, crew region where you know, half the households are female-run, half the businesses are female-run. Um, so these are kind of likely uh, hearths for a kind of folk feminism. And they add a gendered perspective to this issue, which I think makes it more intriguing. And these places are kind of um, like little niches all across Europe. They, they're, they're a patchwork, you know, not even, a, even within a region like Brittany, you'll have one village which grows grain and then the village up the road where grain's no good uh, because of salination or for something else sends half its young men to the, Eastern, to the French East India Company or something like that. Um, so there's a peculiar relationship between these little crew villages and particular destinations and particular enterprises. Uh, and then its mirror image is a unusually um, uh, independent woman folk at home. And this applies to the Cossacks in Russia and to Novgorodian uh, crewmen as well. Um, so it's not just a Western European phenomenon. It's a plague phenomenon. It doesn't feature much in the Muslim South because they don't really need it. Uh, not that I know of anyway. Uh, because they've already got their um, surplus males as Ghazis and volunteers to die in God's wars. Mm. Very interesting. Um, I think this is one of those pieces that as I was reading the book, I was like, oh, this wait, I already, I know a bunch of things about this and I hadn't really realized they could go together in this way. Um, and so it's a really interesting sort of take on uh, information examples that are going to be familiar to people specializing in a lot of different areas um, that can be understood in this more linked context. I, th I think this is the essence of the game. You know, I'm not trying to, um, I'm not trying to uh, override experts, but I, I try to take them seriously, add breadth to their depth, juxtapose different types of information, and provide a fresh frame in which specialists can uh, can work. Um, and I think it, it potentially applies to quite a lot of areas. And one of the reasons is that people haven't regarded it before is first that it seems almost inhuman to uh, credit the, such a terrible tragedy as the Black Death with, with benign effects. Um, but second also that we as historians are not really supposed, according to our inherited uh, uh, Subcul occupational subculture to take nature seriously as an interacting factor with human agency in history. So the plague gets a terrible vignette, but it isn't really factored in to a whole variety of historical themes and sub-themes, you know, which you really do wonder about. I mean, how can people not take seriously the fact that half the people they are talking about, how can historians not take seriously? the fact that half the people they are talking about has, have suddenly died. I mean, it is almost, um, it, you know, it, it's a kind of huge missing piece in the jigsaw puzzle 
-hmm. if that's the right term, or a, a kind of blind spot that applies in a lot of different um, historical subgenre. Mm. Well, and, and to think as well about the plague, it wasn't just one moment. Um, the plague comes back over and over and over again in a lot of different places for a really long time. That's right. And what does that do to think about kind of, oh, long-term planning, you know, what kind of job can I have? Well, who knows? I might be dead in six months. Right, which is exactly right. That's one of the reasons why these crewmen, even though they know their chances of coming back are at best 50-50, why they continue to go. Right. It uh, suddenly makes so much more sense of kind of when we look at, especially early Western European um, colonization attempts and the death rates are just huge and the risk is huge and the amount of information that they know they don't know is right. massive and you just it's hard for us to imagine kind of but why would you get on that ship um and this is i think a really important piece of that context because you're sitting in lisbon which has just had its 15th plague strike um since uh, 1350 and although not half the population this time, but maybe 20%, maybe 30% around you has just died. And you think, well, you know, at least if I make it overseas, I, 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 I may die of almost any cause, but not plague. <laughs> and, uh, at least I get to cast the dice myself yeah, uh, rather than just wait here um, for the Grim Reaper to pick me up. Right. And, and I think that the idea of just waiting is so given how frequent the strikes were, but also how unpredictable, right? There are some instances where it will be every single year for seven years in a row, but then there's also a gap of 10, 11 years. Um, or, or even 100 years in some cases, or 120. And so there's yeah. no predictability. It's not like the kind of winter flu season we have now. No, uh, no. They're, they're, they're um, basically the, 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 the strikes are seem random at first. I mean, I do have a theory which helps explain them, which is more to do with rat studies than human history. Um, so I won't necessarily go into that. Um, Please do. Tell us about rat studies. Well, um, what has mystified uh, uh, scholars about the pattern after the Black Death, there are, there are at least 30 major plague strikes after the Black Death. Um, in Western Europe alone, and they stop around 1720. They stop later in Eastern Europe and later still in the Muslim South, which may make a difference uh, to their 18th and 19th century histories, well, but I'm not sure of that. Uh, but these repeated strikes, they if you average them out, um, they look as though they are fairly routine, you know, every sort of 10 or 15 years, but when you look more closely, they don't actually follow this pattern. There might be several very lethal strikes and then a period of very low mortalities, particularly in cities. And I argue that what helps explain this is not the development of human resistance, but the development of rat resistance uh, to bubonic plague, um, which um, rats, um, you know, a generation lasts a year, for a rat, so 25 rat generations to each human generation, uh, and the effects of natural selection are going to be much more rapid with rats than they are with humans, and the whole th the notion of human resistance doesn't work anyway, because people in Provence died just the same rates in 1720-21 as they did uh, 400 years earlier, or 300, 400 years earlier. 
sorry, my maths isn't too good at this uh, <laughs> time of the evening. But um, so this, so what happens is that some rats have resistance and some don't. And if resistant rats happen to be dominant in your city, you have very low rates of human death. Um, uh, and then eventually, though, um, uh, those, those rats cease to be immune. It's not a permanent immunity. Uh, it's resistance. And uh, so you're again vulnerable to plague. Depends on how resistant your rats are and uh, how rapidly they recolonized because rats are nearly wiped out by plague. They lose e even more people than humans. Um, experiments show 100% mortality. And in practice, it's probably over 90% in, in, in the wild, as it were, or in, in, in history. Um, and, you know, black, black rats pervade human houses and human farms. They're called roof rats and they pervade ships. They're called ships, ships rats. And the rats one is familiar with today are much bigger brown rats and they don't hide uh, in, they haven't domesticated humans to the same extent as black rats. But fortunately for us, black rats are hated by brown rats who are bigger and therefore kill them when they can or drive them out. And so after the black rat has brought um, 30 plagues to poor old Europe, the brown rat rides to the rescue and, um, and helps end the plague year, although it isn't the only factor. Mm. Very relevant, very important. Thank that's you for explaining dimension. that. That's the rat dimension, Miranda. <laughs> uh, you know, which is a kind of under-history. I don't, I mean, literally probably an under-history, but certainly an absolutely key part of this story and this um, new framework that you're giving us to essentially play around with, really, um, and see what other evidence we can add and kind of what else this helps us understand through a different lens. Um, and so I'd love to perhaps ask you about one of um, the maybe bigger stretches or um, some, something else that you kind of tease us to think about, um, which of course is the link between the plague era and 18th century British globalization and industrialization, which is obviously rather far apart temporally, but how might we understand some links and influences? Uh, well, I think there are there are links and influences, though the effects are indirect, and it's a, it's a necessary rather than sufficient condition for industrialization. But um, I know some of my uh, economic historian friends are not going to like this, but I think they need to consider it. Um, you know, most people would agree that the four preconditions of British industrialization in the mid-18th century are the unusual size of London in proportion to the rest of the country, the rise of, of export manufacturing industry at first woolens and later other textiles, um, the emergence of commercial farming and the emergence of maritime enterprise. You can actually track all these back to about 1400 and causally relate their emergence or their fluorescence uh, to the Black Death. Uh, and they, there's an interplay between them. So um, London's growth means that um, the, there's special pressure to improve agricultural productivity. Um, London's growth is powered by the profits of overseas expansion. 
even though these aren't necessarily big in terms of um, national uh, income. And um, so there's a kind of um, virtuous circle, if you like, or vicious circle, depending on your viewpoint, between overseas expansion, the growth of London, the improvement of English agriculture, the rise of British maritime power, um, and so on. And in addition to this, um, Britain in the 18th century is increasingly in the position of having better outreach um, to uh, the rest of the globe than its competitors. Uh, it takes over the Mughal Empire. Uh, it, it takes over the Portuguese Empire, in effect. Uh, and it, with its little package of empires, you know, it loses the United States politically, but not economically. You know, most of the uh, British whaling fleet is, is still commanded by New England whaling captains after the revolution. These advantages means it can pick the low-lying fruit uh, and adopt global best practice from all over. And one of the best practices it adopts is the attempt to reproduce Bengali cotton, which is the finest in the world and the biggest, um, uh, the biggest exporter. And it manages to do this um, through a, a long process of trial and error, but with the advantage of actually physically possessing Bengal, um, you know, by, what is it, um, 1756. And um, so there's a correlation between British dominance of Bengal, which predates 1756, and British absolute control and British extraction of revenue, uh, which is mirrored by the rise of the cotton industry in Lancashire. Um, so those two go together. So does the ceramics industry, based on Chinese models this time, in which Britain, despite Wedgwood's best efforts, is a bit less dominant because, you know, Leiden and Dresden, sorry, um, Delft and Dresden are just as good centres as, um, what is it, Coventry, the centre of the ceramic trade in Britain? Mm -hmm. Anyway, <clears throat> um, so, um, so you, you're, you're picking, plucking best practice from the rest of the world. Now, that doesn't mean that your inventors are, are not doing anything. They're still important. Um, and what they do in the case of steam arises from the fact that London is growing so fast and becoming so relatively huge that it exceeds all possible supplies of fuel to keep itself warm and to run its industries, which even before steam, you know, things like glass blowing and um, brickworks and so on require heat. So it uses coal and it uses coal from Tyneside um, in particular, develops a special relationship with, Tynes, with Tyneside where the mines are uh, particularly wet and so it has to dig deeper and deeper for its coal and eventually flooding becomes such a problem that this curiosity, which is a, a Franco-British invention really, the steam engine, becomes viable. And the only place where it is is right on top of a coal mine because the initial versions are so expensive in terms of fuel that, they, um, that, they, that they're just non-viable in any context other than when the fuel is free. Um, now, most of this is not mine, but uh, that of an economic historian called Robert Allen, uh, who I think makes a convincing case. So it's the pressure London puts on coal supplies that enables steam engines to um, 
developed through the through the period when they're really strictly speaking not viable other than as curiosities for a museum or something that Archimedes might have made um, to viability where they're sufficiently fuel efficient uh, to start being used in other contexts to power cotton factories uh, to power um, uh, eventually rail, railway railways and steamboats so <clears throat> if you didn't have co- if you didn't have London's growth um, you wouldn't have had uh, the steam engine uh, at least as a viable viable technology um, and if you didn't have overseas expansion you wouldn't have had London's growth and if you didn't have plague you wouldn't have had overseas expansion hmm so, and, and then, of course, there's the profits of, um, of, of slavery and other things and of the, the rip-off of Bengalis who get squeezed and squeezed and squeezed by the East India Company um, to the point where, um, you know, Britain's, Britain's quite rich. Um, it also squeezes the Portuguese who are squeezing the Brazilian Indians and their slaves um, and so on. So... Um, you know, the, 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 the exploitation is part of the story, but um, replication and emulation is also part of it. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's Britain's global reach, which, uh, as well as the ingenuity of its inventors, uh, which enables industrialization, in my view. Now, I should warn listeners that this is, not, this is potentially a controversial view and that it's not the orthodoxy amongst economic historians who tend to say that, um, well, it didn't matter whether you had overseas expansion or not. Uh, you would have still had industrialization. I just don't buy this. Fair enough. I think you've put together rather a lot of evidence um, and ways of thinking to definitely give the orthodox view food for thought, if not impetus to change their minds. I hope so. So you've given us, as I said, rather a lot to think about. Um, but before I let you go, I am wondering if there's um, any project that may be coming off from this book, maybe something totally different. Um, but while readers are off um, reading, listeners are reading the book, is there anything that you're currently working on you'd like to share a sneak peek of? Yes, I'm afraid I've become addicted to this kind of work. Now, <laughs> so it's hard to stop myself. I mean, that's good for us. Well, yeah, it's... it's um... I mean, I'm curiosity-driven, so I, I don't like writing the same book twice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I like to move on to new pr- projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the one I'm moving on to is one that I've touched on before, which is the capacity of um, big cities to create semi-states, which are not really visible in the historical record, um, or at least a, a faint, uh, but which can be traced in various ways and which not only create an, an economic network um, where some of the hinterlands are virtual, that is, they exist across the sea, typically, sometimes hundreds of miles, sometimes thousands of miles, um, and these virtual hinterlands uh, not only adapt to the, the, the real hinterlands of, of the lead city and the lead city itself, but also to some extent adopt a version of its culture. So this sort of cultural economic interplay in the case of big cities uh, is what I'm looking at next. And it ranges from 
20th century London all the way back to classical Athens uh, and includes cities like Istanbul and St. Petersburg as well as New York. Uh, and it can have a big impact on history because um, I'm, I'm inclined to argue that it's this kind of um, urban semi-state and urban collective, urban-led collective identity uh, or imagined community which shifts upland southerners uh, in the Midwest into unionists in sufficient numbers for the North to win the Civil War. And it's this which shifts uh, Australians and New Zealanders and Anglo-Canadians into uh, virtual Britons, thanks to London's uh, networking effects, both economic and cultural, uh, into sufficient numbers of virtual Britons to help Britain win both the First and the Second World Wars. Mm. And uh, so, you know, it's not just um, playtime. Uh, it's, it's, it's something that has potentially significant effects on history. Mm. And one of the intriguing things about it is that although it involves horrible kinds of settler colonialism and, um, and other kinds of exploitative imperialism and class relations, you know, for example, you know, Amsterdam is, collaborates with Polish lords to exploit um, Polish peasants. Um, it also can involve a degree of uh, mutual benefit, uh, which we're unaccustomed to associate uh, with these kind of expansive processes. Hmm. Okay, well, that sounds fascinating. So I think you've sparked my curiosity as, and probably a lot of other people. Um, so I'm really excited to see where that project goes. Well, thank you very much, Miranda. And you really have read the book, which is impressive. <laughs> well, as a reminder to listeners, um, if you are listening to this and also want to read the book, as a reminder, the book is titled The World the Plague Made, The Black Death and the Rise of Europe, just out in 2022 from Princeton University Press. Um, and we've been so lucky to be speaking to the author, Dr. James Bellich. Thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you.